The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Garden Question podcast. Today, we're venturing to the captivating realm of plant breeding, a topic that's as fascinating as it is innovative. We all cherish the joy of designing our own gardens, but have you ever dreamt of crafting your very own plants tailored specifically for your garden? Well, buckle up, because we're about to dive into this extraordinary world with an expert who's mastered the art of plant breeding. In this episode, I'm thrilled to introduce you to David Roberts, a trailblazer in the horticultural universe. David's journey is nothing short of inspiring. Armed with a master's degree in horticultural science from the prestigious North Carolina State University, he embarked on a path that led him to a profound passion for ornamental plant breeding. During his academic pursuits, he'd worked closely with esteemed mentors Dr. Dennis Werner and Dr. Tom Rainey, honing his skills and nurturing his love for the art and science of plant breeding. Here's where the story takes an exciting turn. Bailey Nurseries recognized David's exceptional talent and enthusiasm, welcoming him into their family in 2015. Since then, he's been the driving force behind Bailey Innovations, serving as the general manager and head plant breeder. Currently, as the director of plant breeding for Bailey Innovations, David oversees the breeding directions and orchestrates plant trials right from their nursery in Winterville, Georgia. Join us as we unravel the secrets behind the artistry of plant breeding, exploring David's experiences, insights, and the magic that happens at Bailey Innovations. Prepare to be inspired, because today you're in for a treat. Get ready to witness the bloom of creativity right here in episode 133, Unveiling the Art and Science of Plant Breeding, with David Roberts. David, what is the goal of a plant breeder? At heart, most plant breeders want to create something new and innovative, whether that is aesthetically innovative or performance-based. No plant breeder sets out wanting to create a plant that looks exactly like a plant that's already out there. So I think aesthetically, we want to be able to create something exciting and new that people haven't seen before. But at the same time, it has to be a, a good plant. It's not really going to help anyone if it's a gorgeous plant that's really difficult to grow or keep alive. So it's, I think, a fine balance between creating something that's aesthetically pleasing and something that will perform well for homeowners and gardeners. Are you following current trends and trying to predict what the future gardening spaces will look like? 
Yeah, I think as much as possible. We do try to keep up with trends and what's popular. We often, at our breeding facility, we host visitors every single month of the growing season. Sometimes those visitors are garden riders, sometimes they are landscapers, sometimes they are salesmen or growers. And so we try to capture as wide a demographic as possible and get as many opinions as possible about what's hot, what's new, what are some of the more popular plant groups. We are certainly working with some of those, but uh, we're always open to suggestions and we're always looking for something new to take on. Uh, Yeah, I think some of the trends that we hear a lot about nowadays are drought-tolerant or water-wise plants, pollinator-friendly plants. Often we get asked to create more compact versions of well-known species and cultivars. So those are just a few of the ones that we hear about pretty often. How long does it take to get a plant to market? Oh yeah, that can vary depending on the plant group that you're working with. Hydrangea macrophylla, for example, which is one of our most important crops at Bailey Innovations, it's a very fast plant to both breed and propagate. If we're doing everything right, we could technically you know, germinate a hydrangea seedling and get it to market, I would say within six to seven years. And that's actually pretty fast. That's because you can turn generations around really fast with hydrangea, meaning you can create seed very quickly and germinate that seed and evaluate it quickly. You can propagate the plants very quickly. You can take cuttings and you can get them to root very fast and create a trial for the next year. Once you've decided to introduce it, you can really ramp those numbers up exponentially in a very short amount of time. Hydrange is a fast one. Then if you look at something like a redbud, which I've done some work with, it could take five years for a redbud to even flower. And so With something like that, you're looking at maybe more 10 to 15 years from seed to shelf. So it's definitely going to be longer, the bigger and the woodier the species is, like a tree. But fast flowering shrubs, you can move a little bit faster. I would say anywhere from 5 to 15 years is probably a, a pretty good average, depending on what you're looking at. Is plant breeding just speeding up a natural process that would normally go on? It absolutely is. We're basically utilizing the same mechanisms that Mother Nature does. We're just making it a little bit more focused, a little bit more controlled. In nature, there are pollinators like bees which fly around and they go around and they gather pollen and then they move on to the next flower. And by doing so, they're accidentally or through whatever mechanism depositing that pollen onto a new flower. And that is essentially a cross-pollination. We basically do the same thing, except we're using tweezers and paintbrush to remove the pollen from a flower and then moving it to a different flower to create a hybrid. I like to think of it as like guided evolution. We're not exactly playing God or anything, but you're certainly taking a hand in how this plant would normally reproduce and you're encouraging it to reproduce in a way that benefits your program. It's like you you want to be very specific in how you're making your crosses. For us, that means doing it in a controlled environment with very specific tools. That actually involves excluding pollinators like bees and flies and butterflies and moths. Because as wonderful as those pollinators are, they could fly into our program and inadvertently contaminate our crosses with pollen that we don't really have a desire for. We do utilize Mother Nature. We collect what we call open pollinated seed, which is basically seed that we just collect out of nature that various pollinators have created. Then we've got the more controlled environments that we have to exclude those pollinators from just so we can have better control over the seed that we generate. But after that plant goes into the garden or wherever it's headed, then pollinators are 
still attracted to them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Especially in some cases where we're taking a known plant and we're actually increasing the number of blooms that it creates, you're actually creating even more opportunities for pollinators to visit that plant. Something like a hydrangea macrophylla, the traditional hydrangea macrophylla would flower once a year and be done. Now modern hydrangeas, which can rebloom or flower throughout the year, they provide a much wider window of opportunity for pollinators to visit them versus the old school hydrangeas, which have a more limited window in which they can visit. In some cases, we're actually improving the, the pollinator capacity for some of these plants. I can imagine so much of plant breeding is a science but is there an art to plant breeding? Oh, what a great question. There is absolutely an art to it. I, I think any plant breeder you speak with will say that it's equal parts art and science. You definitely have to understand the science, but the act of learning about a flower and how it opens and when that pollen is ready to collect and when that pollen is ready to put onto the reproductive parts and how that seed develops and the right environment that it needs to develop in and just the technique itself of actually harvesting that pollen and then depositing it. It's very much an art. I think that plant breeding itself utilizes a lot of the staples of what art is. If you think about it, like an artist, they utilize color and shapes and negative space and textures and size and form. These are all things that we take into account when it comes to plant breeding as well. I'm not using paint, I'm using pollen, and I may not be using a palette, I might be using a species of some kind, but at the end of the day, I'm trying to take these characteristics that are very common in any art, and I'm trying to incorporate them and manipulate them into plants that might not otherwise have those characteristics. So I, I think that, yeah, both the technique and the, the overall philosophy of plant breeding is very much an art. That's something that a lot of people don't even think about. So I appreciate you asking that question. That's a good one. Cross-pollinated, and you're trying to manipulate or get to a certain characteristics you're trying to find in that plant, then you don't succeed. But are there happy accidents that happen? Oh, yeah. There's a lot of happy accidents. I think a very common philosophy in plant breeding is that it's often better to be lucky than to be good. We've definitely experienced our fair share of luck. You can never really predict what a plant's going to do. That's where the science comes in. The better you understand the genetic mechanisms of how these plants' traits are inherited, the better you can predict what's going to happen. But that's by no means a guarantee that it's going to actually happen. We can go into a hybridization project with the best intentions and recover something completely unexpected. Sometimes that's a great thing. Sometimes it's a little disappointing. But uh, yeah, there are all sorts of happy accidents that have happened. A lot of them get introduced and are still on the market today. I think you'd always like to try and control that. But at the end of the day, what we're looking for are good plants. Whether that happens through design or by accident, both are, I think are viable options when it comes to the introduction process. So you're carrying the pollination process through, and you're trialing, and you're eliminating, and then some plants make the grade and they get to continue on. Are you trying to find just that one plant, or maybe you have three to five plants that say, hey, these are worthy to be introduced? Yeah, absolutely. So sometimes in the plant breeding program that we work within, we've got specific goals that we have in mind. For example, we might be trying to create a white mop head hydrangea macrophylla. And we know that we can recover hundreds, if not thousands of white mop head hydrangeas. So at the end of the day, we want the absolute best of the best. 
What we'll do is we'll often select anywhere from 10 to 100 best plants that represent a specific phenotype or a specific appearance. We'll trial those side by side with each other for years. At the end of the day, whichever one of those plants turns out to be the best performer will ultimately get introduced. Aesthetics matter, of course. We want the plant to be attractive, but if we've got 10 different white mop heads and they're all practically indistinguishable from each other, then it comes down to which one of those is going to be the better performer, which one of those is going to give the grower and the homeowner the most bang for their buck. At the end of the day, that has to happen through the trialing process. But yeah, sometimes you'll have an entire seed batch and you'll get maybe four or five introductions out of it. Sometimes you'll have to go through hundreds of seed batches before you can get even a single introduction, you are looking for just that one plant. We wouldn't want to introduce two white-flowered hydrangea macrophylla that look identical. It would just be too hard to distinguish them. It would be too hard to, to market them. So if we can pick the best one of those two, that's the plant that ultimately finds its way into the shelves and to the, the homes of gardeners. Have you ever thought about introducing a plant that could withstand sitting in a garden center and not being watered and looking horrible? Yeah, I think we all know. We've all been to some sort of big box store or garden center where the plants look a little special. They maybe didn't get watered today or maybe for a few days and they're looking a bit rough. We like to run a variety of trials. We do run certain water-wise trials where we see whether a plant can take less water or perhaps more sun than it typically would. I'm going to keep coming back to hydrangea macrophylla because that's one of the most popular crops that we work with right now. But for example, we typically grow hydrangea macrophylla in shade, which is in Georgia at least where it would prefer to be. Uh, but we have recently started growing our hydrangea macrophylla in full sun trials to see if they can take increased heat loads, increased sun exposure, less water, effectively making them tougher and easier to, to survive a rough environment like a, a full sun garden center where maybe the worker of the day didn't realize that he should put his hydrangea macrophylla in the shade and he has them in just full blasting sun. We want to be able to create plants that can survive and look good in just about any environment. Nowadays, that especially means being able to create heat-tolerant and drought-tolerant plants. Yeah. Can you create a purple leaf version of any plant, even if <laughs> there's no genetic basis for purple leaf in that species? Yeah, we get asked that question pretty often, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just a lack of understanding about what's possible in the world of plants. There are purple leaf plants out there. Forest pansy redbud is a great example. Ruby Falls redbud, both beautiful purple leaf plants. However, Ruby Falls was only able to be created because forest pansy had that purple leaf in the first place. You can't really just create a purple leaf plant of anything if there's no genetic basis for that existing. For example, I think we've been asked a few times if we could create a purple leaf distillium. And while that would be amazing, we just haven't gotten there yet. Distillium are capable of producing those purple and red tones in the new growth. So I'm not saying it's impossible, but there there's no purple leaf distillium anywhere in the world. Just creating that from nothing, it's a big challenge. Typically you want to Take a plant that has the trait you're looking for and incorporate that trait into another similar species. There are other techniques. There are definitely more advanced techniques where you can mutational breed a plant. You can expose it to radiation. You can douse it with some really nasty chemicals that damage its DNA. You can manipulate its chromosome levels. So there are different things you can do that will result in random mutations in a plant, but that's like a shotgun approach. You're just taking a really wide 
approach at something and hoping for the best, there's not really any guarantee that you're going to get what you're looking for out of those techniques. At the end of the day, you, you have to have at least some kind of a, a genetic basis for that trait that you're looking for. But we'll always keep trying, even if, even if it is somewhat impossible. So there's no hope that I can get the deer resistance of a daffodil introduced into a hydrangea. <laughs> deer resistance is another really popular question we get asked. Hydrangea is so popular. It's like deer candy. They'll eat it all the way to the ground. I wish there was, man. If there was some way we could like pluck out a deer resistant gene and like just insert it into something, that would be huge. That would revolutionize the gardening world. Maybe someday. Uh, I I'm not sure if you're familiar with the CRISPR-Cas9 technology. No, I'm not. Tell us about it. It's, it's basically a, it's a relatively advanced form of gene editing, basically, where you're cutting out or inserting different segments of DNA, basically, in a plant to change it in some way or another. And it's a really amazing technology that lets you do some really fantastic things with plants that are just not possible through traditional breeding practices. So maybe someday if someone can identify like a, a phenolic compound that deer hate, then maybe we can pluck that compound out of an organism and then insert it with the CRISPR system. But that's probably a long ways off. I, I can't imagine that's going to happen in, in my lifetime at least. So <laughs> maybe someday though. Now you've got a plant that you've worked with from the beginning to soon to be introduced into the market and that's the Eclipse hydrangea. Could you tell us the story of that? Yeah, sure. Yeah, Eclipse has been really fun uh, because it's the first time in my career as a plant breeder that I've had an idea for a plant that I wanted to create. I went through the process of hybridizing two plants together. I picked the mother plant. I picked the father plant. I hybridized them by crossing pollen from one onto the other. I later collected that seed that was created. I then sowed the seed. I made selections, meaning I, I basically went through and I plucked out the best plants out of that seedling batch. Out of those seedling batch, the plant that eventually became Eclipse was very apparent to us because it had this incredibly dark foliage. This is a hydrangea macrophylla that was being grown with other hydrangea macrophyllas. And we had some plants that had varying degrees of purple in their leaves, but this one stood out as just being incredibly dark no matter what time of the year it was. And it just stayed that way. So it, it quickly rose to the, the top of our list. We were paying attention to it. We propagated it. We began trialing it, meaning we grew it in clonal blocks of anywhere from 10 to 100 plants so we could learn more about it. We actually ended up trialing it for, I believe, close to five years across four different states between Georgia, Illinois, Minnesota, and Oregon. We had this plant in all these different environments. We tested it for cold hardiness. We tested it for rebloom. We tested it for disease resistance. We tested it for just overall uh, production values or just how much bang for the buck a grower can get out of a plant. At the end of the day, it proved to be a good production plant. It proved to be different enough to actually stand out in the world of hydrangea, which is a very difficult thing. Uh, hydrangea macrophylla is a very crowded market, so creating something that is noticeably different is not the easiest thing to do. Just through the process of all these years of trialing, we slowly recognized how special this plant was. I'm very fortunate that Bailey let me name it. They let me talk about it. They utilized me to talk about it like I am now, the story of the plant and, and how it came about and why it's different. It's my first real commercial introduction. I've helped introduce other plants over the years, and I've trialed hundreds, that some of which have made it to the market. 
But this is my first baby that's actually come from my hybridization work. It's been a, a huge honor to just see it go through the, the process. It's a brutal process. We go through hundreds, if not thousands of plants every year. Less than 1% actually make it to the market. To have one that you take the time to kind of culture and develop, it's a really good feeling to see that finally come to market. It'll be available, I believe, next year in various retail settings. It's going to be new and very different. So really looking forward to seeing how that's received by homeowners and how it's utilized in the landscape and garden. Congratulations. I know there's a lot of hard work went into that. Thank you. Yeah. What goes into determining what plant that you invest your time and effort into? Since we are working for Bailey, and Bailey is a, a commercial entity, Bailey owns three different plant brands, one of which is Endless Summer, which is a brand of just hydrangea macrophylla. One of those brands is Easy Elegance, which is a brand of just roses. And there's First Editions, which is a brand of various trees and shrubs. When it comes to Endless Summer, obviously, all we can breed there is hydrangea macrophylla, because that's the only genera in that brand. But when it comes to first editions, there's a lot of different plants out there that we work with. I believe last time I counted, there were over uh, three dozen different genera that we're currently working with, that we're breeding with and evaluating. At the end of the day, some of those characteristics, some of the reasons we work with those plants just come down to sales. You have to be able to work with something that is well-known and well-established in the market. Bailey is in this to make money. They want plants that are going to sell by the hundreds of thousands, if not by the millions. A lot of that comes down to the popularity of the plant group. For example, in the South, Lagerstromia, crepe myrtle, it's a very popular category, and we're very active in that category. But then there are other lesser-known categories, which are still becoming more well-known, like Distillium is a, a good example of that group. Distillium is a broadleaf evergreen. It's a pretty low-growing shrub. It can be used in foundations and hedges. It's a really good mass planting. But 10 years ago, barely anyone knew what distillium even was. One of the things that I loved about Bailey when I first started was their catchphrase for distillium was, it's the best plant you've never heard of. That's what a lot of plant breeders, I think, ultimately look for. You want something new and different that people haven't heard of before, but you want it to have that mainstream appeal. You want it to have that widespread approach to landscape and gardening. We try to balance that. We try to balance the bread and the butter stuff that we know is going to sell well and make millions of dollars for Bailey. But at the same time, we want to experiment with new things that aren't as well known and try and bring something new to the market. Because as I'm sure, there's a lot of new plants coming out every single year. And a lot of the times, they're all in categories that have been well-represented for years. Hydrangea, rose, azalea, spirea. You could just go on and on for the number of cultivars that come out in these groups. We can't avoid them because there's obviously a, a strong desire for new varieties in those areas. At the same time, we want to be able to look for something that can bring something new to the table. A lot of the times nowadays, we're looking for plants that have great disease resistance, plants that have great, I'll call it drought tolerance, or that are more water-wise. We want to find plants that will potentially flower multiple times throughout the year if possible. Plants that don't take up a huge amount of space. One thing we often hear is that gardens are getting smaller and smaller, so we often get asked for more compact versions of plants trying to find something that checks all those boxes, it can be really tough, but that comes with experimentation. We like to play with a lot of different things, not all of which will be viable, but you never know. One of these days you might see something new come out of the program that you never heard before, and, and that makes it worth it. How much can you really improve a crepe myrtle? 
Yeah, uh, that's a good question. There's a lot of crepes out there, and they've all got a lot of the same issues. What we look to find something that is aesthetically different, but we really value the, the performance of these plants. For us, that means evaluating for disease resistance. Um, Cercospora is a very typical leaf spot disease in Lagerstromia. In fact, I could take you out to my neighborhood right now and show you at least half a dozen crepe myrtles that are completely defoliated right now because their Cercospora susceptibility is so high that they were you know, completely leafless about a month ago. And that's pretty early in the year to be defoliated. So we really look at all of our selections very closely when it comes to disease resistance and just how they perform both for the grower and in the landscape. We're creating new forms. In fact, we've got some crepe myrtles that people don't even think they're crepe myrtles when they see them because they're so different. We really lean on that performance. And the only way we can have confidence in that performance is by constantly trialing our plants. That's intriguing that you're saying you have crepe myrtles that don't even look like crepe myrtles. Is that something you can talk about? Yeah, yeah. So we've got a, a very active crepe myrtle breeding program. And in that program, we've recovered some really interesting shapes and sizes, color combinations. Sometimes they're amazing and it's a no-brainer. It's, yeah, that's fantastic. When can we introduce this? But in other cases, the plant is so different that it's actually outside of what a person would normally think of or think a crepe myrtle does. That's something we often encounter. We've got these incredibly compact crepe myrtles that look almost like a gumpo azalea when they're in full flower. It's just remarkable. When we show these to our network partners and to various growers, one of the first things they say is that's not what people think of when they think of a crepe myrtle. People think about Natchez and all these beautiful tree-sized crepe myrtles that you can use in parking lots and for shade and you can have picnics under them. There is, without a doubt, a place for those in the landscape, but we wanted to create something different and new that people didn't think of when they, it came to crepe myrtles. And in this case, we succeeded, but it's almost like we did our job too well because it's so different that it's hard for people to imagine how to use something like that in the landscape. You ask someone, where are you going to put this crate myrtle? And they're going to probably envision a spot that's pretty wide open and has plenty of space for it to grow. And some of these, you only need about three square feet to grow a very nice, dense little shrub. But that's not how crate myrtles are typically used in the landscaping industry. We get a little bit of pushback, and I think it's going to require a little bit of education to get people to start to think outside the box when it comes to how to use some of these things. It still has all the great characteristics that a crate myrtle has. It's got these beautiful flowers. It's got really good insect resistance. The ones that we develop, we lean on that disease resistance. It's a really great plant, but very different from what you would typically think of as a crepe myrtle. Yeah, that's great. Are there any other plants that you're developing or have developed that don't look like what we normally think of? Yes, I guess I do have to be careful. I can tell you that in the world of hydrangea macrophylla, it's a very crowded market. There are a lot of plants that look very similar. If you think about a pink mop head on a hydrangea macrophylla, there are probably two dozen different cultivars you can buy right now that all look almost identical to one another. For a breeding company who is tasked with creating new hydrangea macrophylla, it can be a big challenge to create something that is drastically different from what's been there. But I do think Eclipse, for example, is a start of that, I'm not going to call it a revolution, but a change in what a hydrangea can potentially be or potentially do. So I can't really talk about some of the new things that we have coming, 
But I will just say that they will be as different from a traditional hydrangea macrophylla as Eclipse is, but in numerous ways. We're talking about different types of flowers, foliage, even habit. We're doing some pretty unique things when it comes to that. Yeah, just because the, the information is proprietary, I can't really go into great detail about what some of those things are, but I'll just say stay tuned and keep looking out for things coming from our program. You'll eventually see some pretty different stuff. It's not going to be what your, your grandma thought of as a hydrangea, but I think that's a good thing. I think that'll challenge some people to think about it in a new way. What about plants that aren't hydrangeas? What's something that's really unique that you're working on or I've already introduced? I'm not sure how unique it is, but I think one plant group that doesn't really get as much attention or credit as I think it deserves is Vitex. The whole genus of Vitex has a number of really great plants in it. Specifically, Vitex agnus castus has been a pretty common staple in the South. It's never been as well represented as something like a hydrangea, but you can find them all throughout the southeastern parts of the U.S. However, Vitex are often used as small trees. If you think about Shoal Creek, which is probably one of the most popular, it is used in parking lots, it is used in foundations, it's used in landscapes. There's a botanic garden right down the road from me where they've got a shoal creek that's probably between 12 and 15 feet tall. I've seen people have picnics underneath it. It's a beautiful tree. It's drought tolerant. It's an incredible pollinator magnet. It will attract any kind of insect you can imagine. Produces these beautiful panicles of purple flowers. Has a really unique texture to it. But it doesn't have a lot of representation in the market today. So what we've been doing is working on making it more compact. That's something that we hear often is, can I get a, a smaller version of this large plant? We've been working on improving its disease resistance, and we've been working on improving its overall producibility. Vitex are a relatively easy plant to grow and produce, but we're really focusing on how quickly can you grow and finish a plant. For a grower, for example, if they can basically finish a plant, and that means you're starting with a, a small plant, a liner, and you're putting that into a larger pot and growing that larger pot until it's a sellable size, the faster you can do that, the better it is for a grower because they can turn their plants quickly and it's relatively a cheap way to, to sell a lot of plants. We're working on Vitex that are much more compact than anything you would imagine. We've got different color flowers that you cannot find on the market today. We've got some really incredible reblooming plants on really compact sizes that I think is going to hopefully change how people think about Vitex. It's one of those plants that when people hear Vitex, they think Shoal Creek, they think small tree. But we're talking about plants that, again, are going to be very compact, very colorful shrubs that have great disease resistance, great pollinator attractants, and will take up far less space in the garden than they typically do. That's one category. It's still very slow to take off, but every time we show this group to our visitors, it gets more and more popular, especially with some of the more compact ones that we've got coming. That's another group that I would say stay tuned to what's coming out of Bailey Innovations, and you'll see some pretty neat stuff over the next few years. So you're, that Vitex, you say, is attracting a lot of pollinators. One thing that I hear a lot is that plants aren't being bred for pollinators these days. Would you like to comment on that? I can understand the concern. Pollinators are an essential part of our world. Protecting them and providing healthy habitats for them is essential. You really can't breed a plant that's going to have a negative impact on a pollinator or a species or a group of pollinators. However, I haven't encountered any plant yet, at least that we've created, that attracts fewer pollinators 
than the straight species or than any native species. Vitex is a great example. Vitex agnus castus, it's not native to Georgia, but there is no plant on our property that attracts more pollinators than that Vitex does. It's incredible. It's one of the first plants to be in flower in our field in early summer. You can walk by our plants and you can literally hear them buzzing and humming with all these different pollinators, whether it's flies or bees or humming moths or butterflies or, or really anything. If it is capable of flying to a flower, it is going to find its way to a vitex. What we're doing is we're creating vitex that have even more flowers than the typical species that you would find in the landscape. If you've got a plant that's a natural pollinator magnet and you're just increasing the number of blooms that pollinator creates, you're just creating even more opportunities for those pollinators to come visit that plant. By extending the window that plants in flower, you're creating an even wider window for a group of pollinators to visit that plant throughout the year. I think the one area where we have seen a difference is when it comes to the actual the inflorescence type of a hydrangea, for example. You and your listeners are probably familiar with two types of inflorescence on a hydrangea macrophylla. There's the lace cap, which is a flattened corum, which has a, a nice ring of sterile florets that sort of ring around the, the perimeter. Then there's what most people are familiar with, the mop head, which is that rounded dome of sterile florets that create this big, beautiful display of flowers. That dome, it's comprised almost entirely of sterile florets. Even though those florets are designed to attract pollinators, we have seen that a lace cap hydrangea macrophylla, for example, does have a tendency to just attract more pollinators than a mop head might. Now, that's not to say that a mop head isn't going to provide for pollinators. Even though a mop head, those sterile florets are called sterile, that's because they can't set seed, they can absolutely produce pollen. That's something that we've utilized in our program. A mop head, even though it may not set seed, it can still provide pollen for a pollinator, but it does seem that they're just more naturally attracted to the lace caps than they are the mop head. That is one thing that I think in the world of hydrangea macrophylla, a lot of people don't really think about that a mop head, it's just going to outsell a lace cap. In fact, I believe I've heard stats that say mop heads outsell lace caps 10 to 1. And that's because most people have that iconic pink or iconic blue mop head in their mind. They probably would be better for the pollinators if they put a few lace caps in their garden as well. That's a tough sell. We just introduced a lace cap in Endless Summer called Popstar. And it is hands down the best hydrangea macrophylla we have ever developed. But it's just not gaining the kind of traction that a mop head would. It's been very well received and it's, I think, going to be one of our best plants. But simply because it's a lace cap versus a mop head, it's just been a little bit slower to gain that traction. I think that's unfortunate, but that's really the only instance that I can think of in plant breeding where a change to the morphology of a plant has actually had an impact on the pollinators. More often than not, we're creating more opportunities for pollinators, I think, than less. Do you ever work on improving native plants? Yeah, there are several natives that we're working with right now. Hydrangea arborescence is one, hydrangea quercifolia. We're working with deer villa. What else? We actually are working with a native Vitex species that's very different from Agnes castus. 
In each of those cases, we are essentially trying to create a native version that flowers even stronger than the current version does. Hydrangea arborescence is a good example. You can find them growing natively in the woods in the southeast, but they're often pretty sparse plants with a few flowers here and there. Today's cultivars are just loaded with blooms. Even if those blooms are mop heads, they're still going to attract a lot of pollinators. I would say that those are probably the biggest natives that we're working on. We are dabbling in a few other categories, which I can't really give that away because it's a group that some people don't really have on their radar right now. But we are definitely looking at some known genera that don't have great cultivar representation today. That is the hope that we can get more natives or nativars, as I guess some people call them, into the market. Tell us a little bit about Bailey Innovations and how it came about. Oh, sure. This is a story that goes all the way back to the great Dr. Michael Durr and his friends, Jeff Beasley and Mark Griffith. Both Jeff Beasley and Mark Griffith are very well-established and well-aspected nurserymen in Georgia. Mark Griffith is still a plant propagator for Bailey. And these three guys basically came together one day and decided that they wanted to create a plant breeding company. This is something that they're all very passionate plantsmen, and they've all got just decades of experience when it comes to growing and breeding plants. Dr. Durr brought his scientific knowledge and acumen. Beasley and Griffith brought their grower know-how and their passion and their just knowledge of plants in general, and they combined their forces to create this really amazing plant breeding company that they called Plant Introductions Incorporated, uh, or PII for short. They had an amazing run. I, I believe it was, uh, yeah, don't quote me on this, but I want to say it was something like seven or eight years they had of just constant introductions coming out of their plant breeding company. They introduced a lot of Southern staples, many of which are still on the market today. They were introducing crepe myrtles and hydrangea and distillium. These guys are the ones that basically revolutionized distillium for the South by creating an entire line of these uh, new hybrids that no one had ever seen before. They had this incredible collection of plant material, and they had been working with Bailey Nurseries for a number of years. They had been introducing crepe myrtles through Bailey. In fact, Dr. Michael Durr is responsible for bringing the original Endless Summer to our attention. We were growing the original Endless Summer in Minnesota, and Dr. Durr saw it one day and recognized this plant as flowering when none of the other hydrangea that were being grown were flowering. And he recognized that as being a, a very unique thing. This was at a time of the year when the hydrangea should not have been flowering, but he saw this one that continued to bloom. He thought that was a big deal. He brought it to Bailey's attention. That is how the first Endless Summer was essentially created. That led to a, a revolution when it comes to reblooming hydrangea. Long story short, Dr. Durr and his friends and Bailey had a great relationship. When Dr. Durr and his friends at PII decided to sell their company, it was just a natural fit for Bailey to make that acquisition. They had a really great long-standing relationship. Bailey has great respect for Dr. Durr and Jeff Beasley and Mark Griffith. We'd had a, a really good run of working together over the years. The three guys made an offer to Bailey. They accepted. That acquisition was basically all of the germplasm or all of the plants that these three had created over the last seven years. Essentially, Bailey inherited all of that germplasm. Then about a year later, they hired me to take over the management of that property and of that germplasm collection. 
I was very fortunate that I got to work with Dr. Durr and Jeff Beasley and Mark Griffith for about a year. They served as consultants. They helped me get my feet under me, showed me the ropes, and explained how they did things. I just learned so much from them that it was a really great experience. Bailey wanted to rebrand PII in their own image, and so they renamed PII Bailey Innovations. They purchased a piece of property that's about 40 acres large. We later relocated. We essentially picked up all the plants that we purchased from those guys. It was over a thousand plants. I can't say exactly how many. I want to say it was several thousand, probably closer to 2,000 plants that we basically picked up and moved about 20 miles down the road. We moved them to where we are currently located, which is in Winterville, Georgia. Basically, Bailey Innovation started from the rich knowledge and experience and germplasm that was created by Dr. Durr, Jeff Beasley, and Mark Griffith. We really can't talk about the success that we've had today without talking about the shoulders of those giants that we stood on. What do you wish people would do differently when designing, building, or growing a garden? I think for me personally, it's just know your plant sizes. That's tough because as a plant breeder, as someone who's in the world of product development, we do our best to give an estimate of how big that plant is going to get, how tall, how wide, how quickly it grows. We do that very specifically so that people know how to utilize these plants in their garden and landscape. There are plenty of gardeners out there that understand this and that can properly size a plant to the yard, but it's pretty remarkable how even today I see major landscape companies planting trees that are going to get to be 50, 60 feet tall directly underneath a power line, which means they're just going to have to chop that thing in half someday. I do see similar things in home gardens as well. A thuya that someone plants right next to a a shrub that's going to get absolutely swallowed by the time that tree, that thuya, gets to be full-sized. Just having an understanding of what that plant is capable of doing size-wise and shape-wise, I think just helps you better respect the boundaries of the other plants with it. Being a good neighbor and all that. You don't want your plants to swallow one another. You want to be able to appreciate them all individually. It's a challenge, even for me sometimes, is you've got this description of how big a plant gets on the tag, and you put it in this spot thinking that it's going to stay that size, and inevitably, it gets a little bigger than you thought it would. Sometimes that's not the gardener's fault. Sometimes they're doing their best to follow the instructions and do what it says, but the plant itself doesn't follow the instructions like it should. But I think, yeah, as best you can, I'd I'd love to see gardeners just try and do their best to manage the space of the plants and the space in between their plants. What's a garden myth you'd love to smash? Going back to the pollinator thing, I think personally, there's this myth that non-native plants are for some reason not good for native pollinators. I don't think I've ever seen any kind of data or scientific study to back that up or to lend that any kind of credence. As I was mentioning before, Vitex agnus castus, which is not a native to Georgia, is without a doubt the best pollinator plant I have ever seen on our property. I get that certain insects evolve with these plants. It's a natural food source for them, but I can't really think of many pollinators that have a sole source of food. There are, of course, plants like monarch butterflies that have a very special relationship with Asclepius, but I think a lot of pollinators are going to be more generalist, and I think a lot of them are just going to take advantage of whatever it is they can find. I'm not trying to say there's anything against natives. Like I fully support and encourage absolutely any and everyone to plant as many natives as possible, utilize them in your garden, your backyard, your woods, wherever. I think it's absolutely necessary to use natives, but I don't love that 
non-natives are getting a bad rap simply because they're, they didn't evolve in that region. I think there are plenty of plants that didn't come from America that are doing plenty for the pollinators of America. What is your earliest garden memory? So I think my first exposure to a cultivated garden actually came when I was in my early 20s. I believe it was in Asheville, North Carolina. There's this amazing arboretum called the North Carolina Arboretum. My mother encouraged me to go visit there one day, and I did. And I was just blown away by just this majestic beauty that the natural environment had. The Asheville Arboretum, it just has acres and acres of just natural woodlands that have been undisturbed. So it's just got this natural beauty to it. But then it has all these beautiful cultivated gardens as well. One of which is a world-class bonsai garden, which is just one of the most beautiful I've ever seen. To just see this combination of natural beauty and cultivated beauty in a very well-maintained and just immaculate setting, it was incredible. It was inspiring to me. I later went on to become an intern and uh, a volunteer for that arboretum. I later got a job with that arboretum. I worked with their bonsai curator, and it just led to my entire passion for plants in general. I would say that North Carolina Arboretum in Asheville is almost solely responsible for getting me into the world of uh, plants. I hesitate asking this question because I think you've already answered it, but why did you decide to pursue the horticulture field? Oh, yeah. No, that is a, that's a good question because it's a funny story. Originally, I had this appreciation for plants, but I never thought I would be working with them. I originally went to school for computer programming and was going to be a graphic designer slash computer programmer. Went through about two years of just core classes and basic computer classes. I remember very specifically sitting in front of a computer screen one day and just looking out the window at what a beautiful day it was and just wishing I was outside instead of staring at that monitor. That was my last semester in computer programming. I stopped going to school. I started working full-time just to earn money and to figure myself out. It took a while, but after several years of just working, I finally realized that I should be doing what I love. And that's something that both my father and my mother were very encouraging of was to don't necessarily go for what's going to make you a million dollars. Do something that you're going to actually enjoy. You'll get more satisfaction out of it. Plants was something that I got a lot of satisfaction out of at the time. My friends and my family all encouraged me to go back to school, which I did. But this time, going for something that I was truly passionate about with horticulture, it was like night and day, completely different. I'll be completely honest. I was not a good student when I was going for computer programming. But as soon as I started pursuing something that I was really interested in, it was like someone just flipped on a light switch and all of a sudden everything made sense. And I worked my butt off to try and do as well as I could in that field. Honestly, going back to school for horticulture is one of, if not the best decisions I've ever made in my life. So that's, I think, what ultimately led to where I am today. In your professional career, who's been your biggest influencer? Ooh, that's a tough one. Man, biggest influencer. I don't know if I can name just one person. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to name probably three or four, and I'll go in the order of how they influenced me. When I was at the North Carolina Arboretum in Asheville, their curator of the bonsai collection. His name is Arthur Jura. He took me under his wing. He trained me in bonsai, but he also trained me how to grow plants. He taught me how to garden. He taught me how to 
put a plant in the ground. He's the one that taught me how to appreciate plants in the first place, I think. And he encouraged me to go back to school to get an advanced degree. I consider him like my horticultural father. He encouraged me and, and nourished me in the ways that I needed to get me to that next level. Then when I was in school, I was very fortunate to work with both Dr. Dennis Werner, who is the plant breeder who created uh, Ruby Falls Red Bud. He created the new Flamethrower Red Bud, which has been all the rage. It just won the Chelsea Flower Show. Dr. Werner was kind enough to take me under his wing as uh, his graduate student. He taught me the fundamentals of plant breeding, and that was just revolutionary. And when I got to grad school, I had a chance to work with both Dr. Werner and Dr. Tom Ranney, who is another prolific plant breeder and has, is responsible for some of the best-selling plants in America today. He has just a litany of huge introductions that Spring Meadow and Proven Winners carry. So just another prolific plant breeder in general who really taught me a lot of the more advanced plant breeding techniques. Then Dr. Michael Durr, the great Mike Durr, again, was a consultant for the first year that I worked for Bailey and just had a completely different philosophy and approach and perspective when it came to plant breeding. Different from Dr. Werner and Dr. Ranny, but no less viable and was really just incredible to see that passion come through him. Yeah, I would say those four guys have honestly contributed almost equally to my development as a plant breeder. It really was Arthur Jura who started it all by giving me an opportunity and nourishing that. If I had to absolutely choose someone, it would probably be him. That's four big ones. Yeah. <laughs> what is your most valuable garden mistake? This kind of goes back to Arthur Jura, who I was just talking about. I probably did this a couple of times, but to just didn't give a plant that I put in the ground the right home, the right size hole, the right amendment, whatever you want to call it. Arthur Jura taught me that you don't put a $100 plant in a $10 hole. You make sure that home that you put that plant in is just as well-maintained and manicured as whatever that plant went through. A plant that goes through the, the growing process, sometimes it takes years and money and energy and man hours and time and attention to get that plant to the stage where you buy it. To just shove it into the ground with a hole that's barely big enough to hold the root ball, you're not doing it any favors. And you're not doing yourself any favors because you're just going to have to replace it someday or take some steps to improve it. I definitely put some $100 plants in some $10 holes and those plants are no longer with us. So that taught me pretty quickly that he's absolutely right. You got to just take the time to build your hole, give it plenty of room, amend it if you have to. In Georgia, we've got this terrible clay that you almost have to amend it with something in order to get any kind of drainage in there. But yeah, just proper planting technique is something that I have messed up plenty and, and learned from extensively. What have you recently learned about horticulture? I don't know that this is going to be that interesting for your audience, but we're learning a lot about just production practices for different plants around the world. Bailey, we've got network partners in, well, throughout Europe, France, uh, Germany, the Netherlands. We've got network partners in Australia, South Africa, China, South Korea, Japan. So all over the world, the different ways that people can produce these plants is just astounding. Like the way I grow a hydrangea in Georgia, totally different from the way they're being grown in Japan or in Germany. We're all creating the same product. We all want the exact same thing, but there's just so many different ways that you can go about that. 
just in hydrangea macrophylla, there are different methods for producing hydrangea macrophylla depending on where it's ultimately destined. At Bailey, our own method for producing garden hydrangea, which are designed to survive 100 degrees in Georgia or negative 30 degrees in Minnesota. But then there are these other hydrangea, which are designed to just sit on your tabletop or in your patio for a season and then be thrown out. The way you grow that hydrangea is totally different from the way you would grow a garden hydrangea. It's just really astounding to me, I guess, how many different ways there are to skin a cat and essentially come up with the same product. In hydrangea, there's what they call a chilled liner program in which you basically have a very young plant, a very young propagule. You're essentially chilling it in a cooler for a certain number of months so that it goes through dormancy and then can be woken up pretty much on cue to flower at a very specific time of the year. These growers are basically scientists that can calculate, all right, I got to pull this plant out of the cooler exactly on this date to have it in flower for Mother's Day. They do it every single year. It's also a science and an art. You got to work with what Mother Nature gives you with the seasons, but at the same time, you can manipulate the very foundation of what these plants need in order to make them do what it is you need them to do. It's very artificial at times, but it works. And it's really remarkable how many different methods there are for doing that. I've always thought that the florist hydrangea was not a very good garden hydrangea. Is that true? Absolutely, yeah. You, you hit the nail on the head. That's something that we often struggle with because a lot of the times customers will see these beautiful hydrangeas in Lowe's, Home Depots, and Walmarts, and they look astounding. They're just full of these big, beautiful blooms. They'll buy them and they'll put them in the ground and then they'll be dead the next year. They don't understand what happened. It's not their fault. These, these florist-type hydrangeas are really designed to be appreciated in a very short window. Unless you've got the perfect environment for them, they're not going to do very well on the ground. That perfect environment for them was probably somewhere in Europe because a lot of these florist types are developed in either Europe or Japan and our environment is very different from theirs. It's going to be really tough for anyone to take that florist-type hydrangea and put it in the ground and have success with it. But it happens all the time. When that happens, the homeowner or the gardener that does that, they get this mentality that, oh, hydrangeas are tough. They're not an easy plant to keep alive, and I don't want to mess with that. It's just the kind of hydrangea they were using wasn't quite right for their environment. Hydrangeas really are not that difficult to keep alive and to thrive, but you definitely have to pick the right cultivar. That's what we do at Bailey Innovations. We're solely focused on creating garden hydrangeas, but we're constantly fighting this mentality of what a florist type is. We want to create that florist type aesthetic in a plant that can perform in the garden. We're getting closer and closer to that every year. It's really cats and dogs, two totally different animals that you really can't compare. Um, maybe someday we can merge those two worlds together. But yeah, the florist type and the garden type are, are two very different animals. I'd like for you to complete this statement. In my garden, I have. <laughs> In my garden, I have a lot of trees and I didn't plant them all. A lot of the trees in my backyard were left to just grow by the, the people that used to own this house. I swear they had just 
dozens of sweet gums and pine trees pop over over the years and they didn't take out a single one. So I've got a very small forested lot in my backyard that I've been slowly chipping away at over the years. I think I've taken down half a dozen trees so far. I'm trying to open up a little bit of space and get a little bit more sunlight into my backyard. In my front yard, I've got a lot of trees that I did plant. In my backyard, I've got a lot of trees that I did not plant and I'm hopefully going to have more room for the cultivated ones in the near future. My time has been very well uh, taken up by chopping down small sweet gums and pine trees. What did you learn from your garden last year that you're applying this year? I learned that you have to water certain viburnum more than just a, a year. I had two viburnum that I planted. I got them well established. I watered them in regularly when I first planted them, then eventually weaned off. By the end of last year, they were good. They were well established. This year, they started off fine. Then we hit this really dry spell that we've been in here in Athens. They all went downhill very fast, and I thought they were well-established enough. It's clear now I should have run a hose over or at least provided some kind of supplemental irrigation. But usually viburnums are tough. I think all mine are alive. One of them did drop all its leaves. I know that it's going to bounce back just fine in the spring. It took a little bit longer for them to get established than I thought they would, so that was uh, very educational. You've told us about working and taking out trees, but what is your vision for your future garden? The current vision is my partner, she is a rose fanatic. She's got a huge collection of roses, and so we're currently planning out where those are all going to go in the front yard. We're probably going to have a nice little rose collection. Because I work for Bailey, I've got access to lots of trees and shrubs. We've got a pretty good collection of those already. The next step is to start to supplement that with various grasses and herbaceous perennials. I'm not the biggest fan of annuals, but maybe sprinkle a few of those in there at some point too. Right now, I think we got the woody thing under control. We got to start to branch out and dip into the perennials a little bit. We've talked about a lot of plants today. What plant are you in love with this week? Hmm. I'm glad you said this week. Thank you for throwing that in there because anyone that asks what's your favorite plant, I can't answer that. But this week, uh, you know, this week I'm going to say it's an azalea because we're working on reblooming azaleas at Bailey Innovations. And our azaleas are still reblooming and looking really good right now. At this point of the year, most of our hydrangea do not look great. They're on their way out. They're starting to get tired. They're starting to get leaf spot. The flowers are starting to fade and break down. But the azaleas that we created that are reblooming, they've actually got some really nice fresh flowers in them right now. If you think about an encore azalea, this is around the time of year that they're reflowering as well. And from a breeding perspective, azaleas are incredibly easy to hybridize. You could literally do it with your bare hands, your fingers. You could just pluck out an anther and, and dab it onto the stigmatic surface of a reproductive part and, and you're good to go. It's an easy plant to breed with and it's providing a, a lot of necessary color at a late point in the year. I'll just say azalea for now. David, tell us how people may connect with you. Best way is probably through email, which is my full name. So david.roberts at bailey, and that's B-A-I-L-E-Y nursery.com. This has been episode 133, Unveiling the Art and Science of Plant Breeding with David Roberts. Thank you, David. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. 
please generously share the Garden Question podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.